Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Welcome to The Rest is History. We are, of course, talking about the gunpowder plot and bonfire night, which is tomorrow, Tom Holland. Are you looking for... Are you, are you a bonfire night aficionado? Uh, well, I'm not, because I'm very worried about hedgehogs. Oh, because, yes. Yeah, I read this. Because hedge, people... hedgehog, hedgehogs hibernate. Uh, yeah. and so, they're, you know, this is exactly the time of the year they're looking for a large collection of, you know, brushwood or something to settle down in. So they, they find... You know, these large bonfires and they think, oh, excellent. Here's a place to stay for the winter. And then the next thing they know, they're being burnt to death. So I'm, I'm very worried about that. Well, I think surely the answer to this is look out for hedgehogs, but you should have a bonfire because it's very important to remember this this shocking moment in 1605 when Guy Fawkes and co tried to blow up the House of the Parliament. Do you not think? Well, so so that was the question, wasn't it? In in the, the doggerel that you just quoted, the famous doggerel. Yeah, no um, reason. Should it, should, should it be remembered? Yeah, of course it should. I mean, it's interesting. It, it, I guess it should be remembered because it is an amazing story. It's yeah. an absolutely kind of prototypical terrorist attack. Great drama. Yeah. But it's also fascinating for the various ways in which it's been remembered. So the gunpowder plot. Now, just for, I am conscious that we have lots of overseas listeners who unaccountably won't know what the gunpowder plot is. What? So they don't celebrate it overseas. It's, shockingly, in Catholic countries, they don't tend to celebrate it. <laughs> so basically, it's 1605. This is a plot by Catholic conspirators with a man called Guy Fawkes, very much to the fore, uh, to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Guy Fawkes is discovered, um, and uh, the plot is foiled. And Tom, we have celebrated its defeat ever since, have we not? Yes, and overseas um, uh, listeners may have seen the film V for Vendetta, um, which is themed around Guy Fawkes Night. And there's a kind of mask with uh, a figure with a beard, um, moustache, uh, which has become very kind of popular with, um, all, all, I mean, all kinds of kind of protest movements. So you may have yeah. seen it with that. Anyway, it's it it, it has been, I, I suppose to a degree, is still a big, a big deal in England. And I would guess you could say that today, uh, in, in a country that's becoming le- ever less overtly Protestant, yeah. uh, and the whole narrative is about Protestants and Catholics, that, that it is actually starting to be forgot. I'm, uh, do you know, Tom, it saddens me, but I think you're right. As a stout-hearted Englishman. I'm a complete traditionalist when it comes to bonfire nights. You know, when I read about people in Lewis burning, they burn Pope Paul V or something, do they, in, in Sussex? Um, well, no, in Lewis... They, they, they do, they, they always burn him. They, they always burn, burn him, a Pope. But, and they burn Guy Fawkes. And Donald Trump. <laughs> but also, yes, they, 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 they burn people who are in the news. I, I utterly approve of that. I, I I want to see apprentices constructing effigies <laughs> of national enemies. You know, do you think that they should um, they should put cats inside the? Uh, I probably draw the line at the cats, so that um, they, they then howl as they uh, as the the effigy burns, which they used to do. Did, did they used? To, I didn't know they used to put yeah. cats. You're not that much of a traditionalist. There's amazing stuff actually. We'll come to in the second half of this about uh, rioting, nineteenth century and stuff, and also bonfire night celebrations in America. Which is a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, that really, well, it's it's only weird, only seems weird now, but of course it wouldn't have seemed weird in the 18th century. We'll come to all that because it's always thought that bonfire night is a peculiarly 
British, if not English thing. But of course, it for a long time, it wasn't. So it did spread um, to the colonies and so on. But we'll get on to that because we should probably kick off with the plot itself, because it is an absolutely fantastic story, isn't it? Well, it's yes, except that it's complicated, isn't it? Because it is complicated, the, as all good terrorist plots are. <laughs> well, it's very Le Carre. It's very Le Carre because, and it's Le Carre. It's 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 very Le Carre esque, I guess, for two reasons. Firstly, that um, it's never entirely clear who the goodies and the baddies are. That's I mean, right. Yeah. Obviously, for 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 most of seventeenth and eighteenth and into the nineteenth century in England, it was clear who the, the baddies were. The baddies were the evil Catholics who were trying to blow up Parliament. But actually. There's kind of skullduggery and oppression on both sides. Um, but the second reason why it's very Le Carre-esque is that there's a kind of murk, and you're never entirely sure whether um, the details of how the plot came to be discovered are true. Or That's even right. really yeah. whether there was, you know, whether the entire thing was fabricated or not. I mean, I don't think it was. I think it was, it was absolutely a genuine plot. But it has been argued that it was completely fabricated by um, by uh, Cecil. Yes, who the was spy James master. the first the son of uh, Lord Burley, who was Elizabeth I's minister. Um, so it, it is a kind of thrillingly complicated story. So let's give a bit of context, first of all. Maybe I'll, I'll say a bit about the context. So we're in the late um, 16th, early 17th century. So England has been through the Reformation. Uh, in Elizabeth's reign, there has been this sort of fear of Catholic conspiracy, hasn't there? There's been sort of Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is this huge saga of sort of Protestant martyrs being killed by evil Catholics. There's this sense of Jesuit conspirators flooding into England. I mean, actually, there's not many of them, but there's this sort of general paranoia about them. There's this unbelievably to our to our sort of 21st century um, uh, eyes. There's this sense of a kind of evil empire. I think one historian called James Sharp calls it in his book, Remember, Remember. He sort of says, you know, there's this sense of an, an overarching Catholic conspiracy that involves the King of Spain, the Pope, all kinds of fifth columnists in England. Well, that, and that's the Le Carre angle yeah. as well. And yeah, the thing is that this isn't completely, biz- this isn't completely no, of mad. Of not, because, because within Elizabeth's reign, the, you know, the, the Spanish Armada had come. Right. Uh, and, and there are Spanish troops across the channel in the In Lomans. Flanders. Yeah, in Flanders. exactly. And of course, the, there's also been a huge massacre of Protestants in Paris in 1572 yeah. in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Uh, the Dutch uh, guy, William the Silent, has been assassinated in 1584. And on top of that, the, perhaps the key thing is um, in uh, in 1570, the Pope Pius V had excommunicated Elizabeth as a heretic and had essentially said that it was the duty of any Catholic to get rid of her, perhaps to assassinate yeah. her. And yeah. so there was this... So I think, understandably, there is jitteriness and paranoia among uh, the, the um, Elizabeth's regime and among Protestants more generally. And there's this kind of terrible when um, the question that's always put to Catholics, the bloody question, whose side would you take if the Bishop of Rome or other prince by his authority should invade the realm by an army, which is a kind of impossible question for, for a well, good Catholic and a patriotic Catholic to answer because totally split loyalties. My wife is Catholic and I often ask her that question. Mine just, is too. I have just to kind of, I should. You should. You should, because it's good to know. You need to know, you know, you don't want to find out that you're harboring a traitor in your own household, Tom. No, that would be a shocker, wouldn't it? Um, but of course, so 
Now, there aren't many Catholics in England. What are there, 40,000 maybe? I mean, it's that's very, very... That's of, of, of uh, John Bossy, who was... The, that's right. The, the, that's the very contested exactly how many there are. They are... There, there's some in the north, in Yorkshire and Lancashire. There are gentry Catholics. So it's the gentry that's the key, isn't it, for this story? Because it, basically there are swinging fines imposed on uh, people who don't go to the Church of England services. Yeah, recusants, as they call Recusants. And so essentially, increasingly, it becomes, you know, it becomes very, very expensive to be a Catholic. Um, and of course, also, it's, um, uh, it's, it, it's gentry with houses where they can build priest holes and build, build up the apparatus that enables, particularly the Jesuits, but not only the Jesuits, priests who yeah. are coming over from Dowie, which is um, this kind of seminary uh, that's being built for, for, for English priests to go back there. Um, so they provide it. And, and the key figures in this are, uh, tend to be women. Um, and they they kind of leverage the fact that, in the opinion of uh, you know, the government, um, the, uh, the the kind of institutions that patrol how people are behaving, it's assumed that men are the head of the household, and there it's it's less significant what women are up to. But actually, it's women who are taking the lead in this, um, and that they play a kind of key role in providing links between the various recusant members of the gentry particularly in the midlands and 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 it's it's a midland focused conspiracy as it emerges it is i also wonder whether there's an element though tom that if you're a man and you're from the gentry so you're from i i mean for people who don't know i mean how would you describe that the sort of let's say the upper middle class uh, for want of a better phrase um then you might want to be a lawyer or you might want to be an MP or you might want to be a teacher or one of these things. And you can't do any of those things as a Catholic because you have to swear the oath of supremacy. So basically, if you're practicing believing Catholic, you as a man, you are shut out of public life, a lot of public life, unless you swear the the oath. Now, the the one thing about these laws is often they're not very harshly enforced because they're dependent on kind of local enforcement. And lots of kind of local bigwigs basically turn a blind eye. They know the Catholic down the road is fine, you know. And in the 1590s, so, you know, that the Spanish Armada has come and gone. Things are starting to ease off. Um, Things slightly kind of cool. So it's less stressful. And also the other thing that Catholics have to look forward to is the prospect of Elizabeth dying. Yeah. And a new king from, or perhaps a queen. Well, there's yes, there's a bit of uncertainty. Isn't yeah, there? there's a bit of uncertainty. So there, the, James the Sixth of Scotland, son of Mary Queen of Scots, who was a Catholic but has himself yeah. been raised a Protestant, is is the obvious heir. But there is another possibility: the Infanta, who's the daughter of um, Philip the Second, who Catholics in England are very excited at the thought that she might. I think she's descended from John of Gaunt or something like that. <laughs> something very. I think yeah. So they they are kind of they're, they're clinging to the hope either that the, the Infanta will succeed Elizabeth that's that's a, a long stretch and it turns out not to work or that James as the son of Mary Queen of Scots will be more favourable to Catholics than um, yeah than Elizabeth had been which is not uh, not wrong because James so James people regular listeners friend to the of podcast, the show well no well no that James <laughs> is a friend of the show yeah. slobbering uh, <laughs> tongue too big for his mouth wisest fool in Christendom but very smart. Loves a theological debate. And the thing about James is he's a Calvinist. So he's, you know, he's a Scottish Calvinist, but he's also a believer in the divine rights of kings and absolute monarchy. So he is not keen on kind of ultra Protestant political ideology. And Catholics think, well, he's a bit ambiguous. You know, James is a great man for unity and consent. He wants a consensus. So maybe when he comes in, as you say, his mother was a Catholic. So he maybe 
represent you know he'll relax a lot of these laws and also um the the guy who said that james was the wisest fool in christendom was henry the fourth of france <laughs> yeah look what happened to him who would be well exactly so, so two points there. so he'd been a protestant who then becomes a catholic paris is worth the mass is his famous quip about that um but he does i mean he ends up being assassinated yeah so exactly who's the fool there james is actually i think a very smart smart operator and one of the things that he does very effectively is to kind of keep his options open yeah so so in the um in 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 the in in the the months and the weeks before uh, elizabeth's death um a prominent catholic Thomas Percy, who I think is the second couson of the Earl of Northumberland. Yeah, he's, he's, one a, of the, kind he's of the a vague great, relative yes, of the Duke of Northumberland. One of the great, great kind of nobles in, in England uh, rules the North effectively. Thomas Percy goes up to meet James and James kind of prevaricates, says, yeah, OK, I might, I might, you know, get rid of the recusancy laws, might, might make it legitimate for Catholics to worship. Um, and Thomas Percy comes back and he spreads this and Catholics in England want to believe this. So they are looking forward to James's accession in a spirit of hope, which that spirit of hope then gets dashed when James be- becomes King of England and, and heads south. Yeah, because he's not going to... It, w- it would actually have been politically very foolish for him, I think, to have relaxed these laws because obviously he's coming down south. There's a lot of suspicion and you know, a Scotophobic, if that's a word, hostility. This Scottish guy is, is pitching up. Is he going to change everything? And obviously, at first, quite sensibly, he doesn't want to change everything. There is a, uh, there are uh, two other plots. A couple of plots, aren't they? Yeah. The, the gunpowder plot. There's a plot called the By Plot, for example, where a load of Catholics have a plan that they'll kind of kidnap James and force him to um, no, relax I, the laws. Is it Catholic? I'm not sure it is Catholics. Oh, is it, I, is it not Catholics? I, no, because Walter Raleigh, there, there are two You're right, there is the Walter, Walter Raleigh. Raleigh Walter Raleigh is involved in it as well. He's but, the but, main plot, I think, isn't but he? But the chief Jesuit, um, Father Henry Garnet, again, yeah. friend of the show, because we mentioned Macbeth. him in the Macbeth episode, I think that he kind of tips the nod on that, on one of them. That's right, he, he does. He's um, Somehow he, did, he gets to know about it and he's, he, he, he tips the nod. So, so James, because of those plots, is, is twitchier than he might have been. Yeah. Uh, and, and basically, he just decides that he's he's not going to go with it. And lurking in the shadows, we have we have a question um, from Fiona H. Did Robert Cecil know, instigate, enable, encourage, smile knowingly in the months and weeks before? We might come to that. But Robert Cecil, who is the son of Lord Burley, um, Elizabeth's great kind of right hand man, he he essentially is the kind of the power behind the throne. He's 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 very short, isn't he? He's five foot tall. He's five feet tall. Do you know what? um, Do you know what uh, Elizabeth used to call him? She called him her little elf. She. I know that that, um, James called him pygmy. (laughs) Pygmy. Yeah. They, they were uh, they were more forthright times when they. they I like to think that. uh, I hope John Burko is not listening to this podcast. Um, Um, (laughs) So, so Robert Cecil is kind of lurking in the background. Yeah, Uh, and and he's essentially you know he doesn't want. He wants to keep things as they are. And I think essentially that a group of um, young noblemen, young kind of members of the gentry in the Midlands basically decide that that, that this is a terrible thing. And the key figure. Not Guy Fawkes. It's a guy called Robert Catesby. Yes, he's from Warwickshire originally, Warwickshire gentry. Born in 1573. Um, he'd been off to Douai, hadn't he? He'd been to this seminary over the over the channel and then he'd come back um and he's basically but he's married a protestant he's married a protestant heiress yeah. 
she, she died. Dies. She died. He then goes back to Catholicism, but this time he's kind of been radicalized. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, we read so much now about people being radicalized and becoming terrorists. Um, he clearly has been radicalized, but he's not, he doesn't fit the pattern of the 21st century radicalized person, I don't think, because he's from a, well, I mean, his life isn't that terrible for him. I mean, I know his wife has died and stuff, but I mean, he's, he's got lots going for, he's very charismatic, very popular. They are, the whole group that he gets around him are basically, they're, they're kind of massive lads. They're, yeah. they're, they're the kind of Bullington club. They're, they are. That's the extraordinary thing, isn't it? They fence, they gallop, you know. Yeah. And I think, I think that, that, that a part of it is, you know, you mentioned that, that they essentially their careers are going nowhere. And these are the, these are the kind of guys who assume that their careers should be going somewhere. So their, their, their hopes of advancement are frustrated. So I'm sure that's an element. They meet, they cook it up, they even the cook it up in the pub. I mean, where is it? The, uh, the Duke and Drake in the Strand are on the 20th of May, 1604. So it's Catesby and I think five others. Um, One of whom is, is Thomas Percy. Yeah, so he's going to so be Thomas very important. Percy, and he comes in and he, he, he walks into the pub and he says, shall we always, gentlemen, talk and never do anything? That's the motto of this podcast, Tom. <laughs> when I read that, I thought, that's me and Tom Holland. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's, that's a kind of, you know, that's a very familiar kind of phrase from terrorist groups yeah we you talk know, and talk and talk we talk and never talk do and anything we never actually do anything and it's also that sort of that sort of um worship of the deed for its own sake because they don't really have a very good plan i don't think so their plan is basically they're going to blow up the houses of parliament at the state opening of parliament so you've got james you've got the house of lords you've got the mps you've got basically the entire political establishment blown sky high and then there's that question that hangs in the air that lots of our listeners have asked, what are they going to do next? And their plan is they're going to get James's third child, who is Elizabeth, who's what, eight, nine? Yeah. They're going to go, she's up in Coventry. God yeah. knows why, but she's in Coventry. You've been to Coventry on one of your trips. Yeah, wonderful. You? Yeah. Um, so she's sort of Tom Holland of, of, of Stuart Princesses. <laughs> she's in Coventry. They're going to go up to Coventry. They're going to kidnap her and they're going to use her. But I mean, it's such a stupid idea. It's such a, it's a terrible idea, isn't it? It is a terrible idea. I mean, it's I was thinking what idea. you would compare it to and it's, it's worse than the Stauffenberg plot. So it's a bit like the Stauffenberg plot and it's the, you know, the, the 1944 get rid of Hitler. So it's decapitate the leadership, but the Stauffenberg plot has had a, a real sense of how they would seize power in Berlin, what they would do next and so on. These guys in the pub, I don't think they have a very good. It, it, it's also slightly that they're kind of it's it's young men impatient with their elders, which is yeah. also something that you see now with with a lot of, um, say, Islamist inspired terrorist attacks. Um, you'll get kind of, you know, their parents saying we had no idea um, and pretty much the same there. Yeah, I think even at the, at the time, Tom, one of them, a guy called Thomas Winter, when Catesby brings up the idea of the plan, he says this is a terrible idea. But in that classic way that happens when a group of kind of five blokes and you know young blokes are together the others kind of shout him down and he says oh okay fine i'll go along with it and Catesby, as you said is un everybody says he's unbelievably charismatic so charismatic that he gets played by kit harrington aka john snow is kit harrington that charismatic though or is he not no, a trifle tri wooden Tom? yes i thought he was a trifle wooden i i thought that he didn't measure up to the charisma of Catesby. But also Catesby has, I mean, so, so they say, why are we going to blow up Parliament? And he says, um, basically, it's, it's the place that they have done all the mischief or something to that effect. You know, yeah. this is the place where they're, they're, they're doing us down. And there's a kind of simplicity to that, isn't there? 
kind of start. I suppose so. It was a start and a stir. But of course, the plot as now what you need with any good story of a plot is a series of shambles and delays, and you I, get that. I, with- yes, but also you need someone. Um, presumably, if you're going to blow it up with gunpowder, you need opportunity, and you need someone who knows how to handle gunpowder. So the opportunity yeah. comes from the fact that uh, Northumberland, the Earl of Northumberland, is able to pull strings and get Thomas Percy appointed to some kind of honorary position. Gentleman pensioner. A gentleman pensioner. A gentleman pensioner. <laughs> what, a great, means, what a great thing to be. Which means that he has ready access to, to um, the Houses of, of, of Parliament. Um, and that means that he can, <laughs> he can start bringing in barrels of gunpowder yeah, and no one's going to ask questions, and they're not put in a cellar, are they? That's what we always say. It's actually a kind of. It's a kind I was of surprised at that. Yeah, when I when I um, started my 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 in depth research, that it's actually a ground floor storeroom. Rather but than Dominic, a, who 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 do they employ uh, uh, as their 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 uh, gunpowder expert? But he's Guy or Guido Fawkes, isn't he? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um. So he's yeah. he's a Yorkshireman. He's a Yorkshireman, and he's um, a very dashing. He's a very dashing fellow, Guy Fawkes. Yeah, he really is. Um, so he was, so he was, um, he came from school in York that is still, um, still going strong today, St. Peter's School. And in 1992, the head boy of St. Peter's School said that Guy Fawkes was not exactly a role model. But in a a way, in a way he is. I mean, he was, he, he's, so he's, he's born Protestant, becomes Catholic as, as he, as, as a boy, I think, um, and goes off and, and really makes a name for himself in Flanders fighting with the Spanish. He's very brave, um, isn't he? Very, he's very brave, very charismatic. Got a sensational kind of red beard. Big hat. Big hat. All the works. And he gets employed um, by Catholic conspirators to go to Spain to, to see if they can persuade Philip III, son of Philip II, who sent the Armada, to basically, you know, invade England. And, and, and the king of Spain says no. But that is when Guy changes his name to Guido. Right. I I didn't know that because I was puzzled yeah. about the... Uh... Now, one thing about the gunpowder, an interesting thing, the reason they're able to get there, you were saying about sort of means, motive and opportunity. One reason they're able to get the gunpowder is that England had, had been at war with Spain. And James, when he became king, basically called it off because he said, it's going nowhere. It's a complete waste of time. So actually, this gunpowder is on the market and it's cheap. There's no need for it. So they're able to get all this gunpowder and they bring it in. But the gunpowder is there too long. Because, because there's plague, right? Because as so often in 17th century England, 16th, 17th century England, there's a plague. So Parliament gets get, gets prorogued. It gets pushed back. So they thought it was going to be so early. Like a COVID it, delay. Yeah, it's a co- exactly. There's been a bit a of lockdown. a lockdown star scenario. Parliament has been, the opening of Parliament is postponed to the 5th of November, 1605. So a lot later than they were hoping. Anyway, the gunpowder just kind of sits there, doesn't it, in this sort of storeroom. Buried beneath um, beneath wood. Yeah, there are t- tons, of, tons of wood. And you would think, well, why doesn't somebody find it? But the Palace of Westminster is, and, and that complex is a completely different beast from what there is today. It's just this great rambling, sprawling mess of buildings and there's no security. You know, there's people going in and out all the time. The storerooms are full of clutter. So it's completely understandable why nobody detects all this. And then you get this letter. Now, this is such an interesting story the monteagle letter yes so monteagle is is a, a noble with catholic sympathies yeah i think that's right is he a catholic himself i can't remember but he's he's kind of he's he's floating basically he's floating around on the edge of of catholic conspiracies that's probably, right i, I think, think he, he had been a catholic and now possibly and isn't. i think I, I i think he's like the earl of northumberland who is catholic in his heart right say. 
Yeah. Um, so he, shortly before uh, Parliament is due to open, um, his servant comes in and says he's, he's been handed a letter by a mysterious figure. Uh, and this letter, when it's deciphered, um, says you should, you should keep away from Parliament. They shall receive a terrible blow, this Parliament. A terrible blow. And yet um, they shall not see who hurts them. And Monteagle takes it to Robert Cecil, who by this point has become the Earl of Salisbury. Yeah. Uh, he's Good to see Salisbury getting a name check. Good to see Salisbury, so um, all over him. And Cecil takes it to James, uh, and so it is that um, people are sent down to, uh, to, to inspect, and they find the gunpowder, and they find a shadowy figure. Well, they don't at first, though. No, they, they inspect it first and they don't see it. They say, oh, it's just a load of old wood. Who cares? Uh, yeah, fine. Or do they? I mean, well, that's all this, part, is this, is, this is all part of the, the, the Le Carre Merc. Are they waiting so that they can capture the people responsible? Yeah, because they say at the time they see a tall and very desperate fellow. Um, but they're like, oh, it's fine. There's probably nothing wrong with it. And then they, James says, James, well, th- again, this is unclear. The, the propaganda basically says, James says, no, no, go back and check again <laughs> yes. in, a, in, a, in a Scottish accent. And... Um, Back they go. So it's the sort of early hours of the 5th of November, isn't it? When back yeah. they go. And they find and- a, a booted, cloaked, hatted figure with three fuses. Yeah, called John Johnson. John Johnson. Good alias. Who is he? He's uh, Guy Fawkes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You've uh, blown it, Dominic. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, unlike Guy Fawkes, ironically. Um, uh, yeah, so they find Guy Fawkes. And, uh, and of course, so much of this is, could be untrue, right? That's what's so fascinating. So go back to the letter. Yeah, it's often thought that the letter is sent to Lord. I mean, the letter is such a dopey thing to do. <laughs> sent to Lord Mount Eagle by his brother-in-law Francis Tresham, who's one of the conspirators, and who's been very reluctant about it. Yeah, who doesn't want his brother-in-law to get blown really up? Want, yeah, but some people express reservations. But some people say that this may not be the case. That Lord Mount Eagle may have dictated the letter himself, and then that's Anto- it. so Antonia Fraser, who's written the, the kind of the great narrative account of the gunpowder plot. That's her thesis. That, and and is that because she thinks Tresham has told Mount Eagle personally, and they just want to find a way for Mount Eagle to, yeah, to uh, pass that, it on? Basically, that, that, that if that if Mount Eagle knows about it because he's been on the edge of the conspiracy, um, he needs to kind of cover his back, yeah, so that he can explain how it is that he knows about the uh, about the conspiracy, and this you know the letter is crucial to the whole story that then gets revealed to uh, a, a shell-shocked protestant nation about what's been going on so it's really he, you know, he gets a pension all kinds of things so you can't in any way have mount eagle being kind of fingered as a as a suspect but also that letter is the 26th of october and they don't then and they wait and wait and wait the authorities before pouncing at the very last minute and so ever since lots of people have said do they wait and wait and wait because robert cecil is basically looking for the most melodramatic possible story to tell to the public. Does he know about it? Or indeed, did he devise the plot? Was it a kind of false flag operation? I, I mean, I think I think no, but I think it's entirely plausible that that he may have scoped out the fact. And this is, you, you mentioned about the delay. Yeah. Um, that the, the, the gunpowder had gone, had been there for quite a few months. Basically, it, it turns out that the plot would never have worked because the gunpowder had... Yeah, decayed. So it was it's not never such a good to... story, is it? When you no, light the gunpowder, not... nothing happens. No, um, and so perhaps you know, it's I mean, entirely feasible that Cecil had had, had checked it out and, and realised that there wasn't any danger, and therefore it was absolutely fine to leave it there, and they could catch them all red-handed. Although Tom, the counter argument to that is that what's in it for Cecil? 
to cook this up because it's not like he uses the gunpowder plot for some hideous crackdown on Catholics. You know, it's not a kind of Reichstag fire kind of event, is it? I mean, they don't use it. it I guess politically it rallies support for the regime, but it doesn't. it's not like he can use this for some repressive purpose of his own. Yes. I mean, it also, well, the, James's key interest at the moment it, 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 when this happens is is uh, forging a union between England and Scotland. That's his focus. He's not really interested in issues about Catholics or whatever. Um, so it, it has been argued that Cecil, who was more interested in that, might have used it to try and get James back on track. And Cecil's right. very good at, um, you know, he takes the letter to James and allows James to decipher it and pretend that he's worked it out. Yeah. So Cecil plays a, a very kind of astute game here. Um, but we don't know, and that's that. That is part of the fascination of it. Uh, you know, who are the, who? Who's deceiving who? 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 Whose plot is it essentially? Yeah. Um, and I think I think we should take a break here, and when we come back, we should look at uh, what happens after John Johnson, aka Guy Fawkes. I gave it away. I've got it. You did. You did. You did. You did. I mean, no one um, would have known before this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then look at, at the reverberations of the plot right the way through the centuries up to the present day. Splendid. We shall see you uh, fireworks in hand after the break. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, don't we? But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Well, Dominic, you'll know that uh, my great love is cricket and cricket is a sport that notoriously takes up a lot of time. So imagine if I had even more time, just how brilliant I would be. And I've worked out that the best way to squeeze things into your schedule is to know what's really important to you so that you can make it a priority. Well, Tom, therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you'll know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfil you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, this is a 5th of November Guy Fawkes bonfire night special. Um, and in the first half, we left left scene absolutely hanging. Um, John Johnson, a.k.a. Guy Fawkes, has been discovered uh, he gets taken to um, the Tower of London, where he is tortured to try and find out his identity. He's incredibly, I mean, he's very, very brave. He he holds out for, for, for a long time. And in the meanwhile, however, um, Ve- Cecil's agents are going out there. They're kind of working out what's been going on. And immediately on the 5th of November, an arrest warrant is issued for Thomas Percy, who it is said on this arrest warrant, privy to one of the most horrible treasons that ever was contrived. And while, while Guy Fawkes is being tortured in the Tower of London, Percy, Catesby, various others of the conspirators are galloping northwards. Parliament hasn't blown up, but 
they are still committed to trying to seize Princess Elizabeth. Yeah. So this is a, this is an element of shambles, isn't it? Just on uh, Guy Fawkes being tortured. Um, you know what? He, of course, he says to James, he says, I want to blow all you Scots back to Scotland. He does. Yes. Yeah, so we've got yeah. a question here on that from Annie Scott. Did Guy Fawkes hate the Scots? If so, why? And if he was certain that the two nations could not be reconciled for long, <laughs> is he a most unlikely champion for Scottish independence? He did hate the Scots. Did he hate the Scots? That's very strong. He, he said just... there, is a, there is a natural hostility between the English and the Scots. All oh, right. Fair enough. Well, yeah. I mean, probably a lot of, I mean, some listeners would probably agree with him. He was very, very Scotophobic. Right. Um, and as you said, yes, he, he, he told his Scottish uh, inquisitors that he wanted to yeah. blow them back to black to Scotland. Anyway, um, sorry, I, that way I sidetracked you. You were talking about them. So, the, yeah, this is an interesting thing. And this comes to the counterfactual element that lots of people have asked about. What would have happened if the plot had succeeded? Because actually the conspirators, as they as they ride across the country, at first they don't tell people it's failed. They sort of say, hurrah. They, they, they raise they, the country. They try to raise the country. To. And obviously, you know, there's this dreadful sort of sequence of events where they're riding to various country houses and banging on the door. Will you rise up and join us? People are just like, no, go away. No. <laughs> Shut the door in their faces. Yeah. So they end up basically doing this peregrine, Tom Holland style peregrination across the Midlands of England where they, they don't get to Coventry. Don't they pitch up near Dudley, uh, Stourbridge? Very, un- I mean, I, as a man of the West Midlands, I have to say, a slightly unglamorous location. Possibly possibly it was more glamorous then. Maybe. They're at a place called Whole Beach House in the end, aren't they, in Staffordshire? Yeah. Um, on the 8th of November near Dudley. And, uh, and there, there is an explosion. Yeah, <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff. They accidentally set off some gunpowder. And I think some of them get killed, some of them get injured. Um, and then there's a massive shootout. There's uh, a very a Wild West-style shootout, Wild, isn't Wild there? West shootout. Uh, and there's a, there's one of the um, the guys who come to arrest them uh, with a single bullet shoots both Percy and Catesby. But Catesby, you know how he dies. Now, I, I find this too good to be true. He supposedly dies clutching with he's got a crucifix and he's cradling a picture of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, I think that's maybe I mean, maybe real, real experts on this will will say, no, this is absolutely true. But that seems too good to be true for me. It's a very Hollywood kind of ending, isn't it? Well, Catesby's death basically means that we, it's because Catesby dies that we know, you know, that the shadow, so much remains in shadow. Yeah. Because he was the, he, he was the kind of the motor, the inspiration, the organizer of the entire plot. So that is why it, it then becomes all the more important for the Inquisitors to work out from, from Guy Fawkes what's been going on. And he holds out very, very bravely, um, but he gets broken. Um, you're not supposed to torture people, are you? Uh, it's against the common law. Yeah, um, but they do and, it anyway. And, and to be fair, uh, the, the Protestant authorities are very, very twitchy about it because um, it, the accusation against the Catholic powers in Europe is that they torture, whereas freeborn Englishmen don't torture people. But with this, they make an exception. And you can be manacled. So you basically you hang from your wrists and you slowly get stretched yeah. or, and then you go on the rack. Uh, and And everyone always... Everyone is always broken on the rack. Uh, and yeah. by the end, I mean, famously, Guy Fawkes has a kind of swaggering signature to begin with. And by the end, it's just a kind of broken squiggle. Yeah. And then, um, so they, they're, tr- they're put on trial. There's eight survivors left, aren't there? They're put on trial in January 1606. The presiding judge is Sir Edward Cook, who's the great father of the common law. And, um, you know, he makes sure that the whole thing is, is blown into this wider conspiracy. That the Jesuits are behind, and he he says in the course of the prosecution that people will find this an extraordinary story. That people will not, you know, they won't believe it could ever have happened. Yeah, but he still he clearly does believe it happened. Well, 
yeah, at least he well, purports, purports yeah. to believe it's happened. So they're sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. We all know what that means. Hanged, brought down, mutilated, you know, castrated. Privy parts are cut off and burned before We haven't your had eyes. some genital mutilation for a while. So no. We uh, purport, luckily, luckily for Guy Fawkes, he's been so, you know, ravaged by torture that he dies straight, pretty much straight away. Well, he, he, so he, so four of them get, get hanged by St. Paul's. Um, and the other four get hanged actually in, in Parliament by, in, in uh, Westminster, <laughs> the yard, Westminster Yard outside Parliament. Uh, and I, I think Guy Fawkes, yeah, he breaks his neck. Yeah. So he dies on the, on the scaffold. And then there's a further, which we talked, a further, uh, execution, which we talked about, um, in the Macbeth episode. Which is Henry Garnet, the, uh, the the head of the Jesuits in in England, who who gets arrested, um, interrogated, sentenced, uh, hung, drawn, and quartered. Uh, and the question with, with him that that also is kind of unclear is the degree to which he was involved, because he he does know about the he plot. knew about it. He he, he he gets he says it's it's the it's the uh, it's the confessional. He can't reveal it, uh, and he says that he has tipped off, you know people in Rome, the Pope, to try and uh, to try and stop it. Um but against that there's the fact that uh he you know he had tipped off um the authorities about the earlier plot when James came to the throne. Counts for nothing though Tom you've got to keep doing it. You've got to keep tipping off. You can't tip off and then stop tipping yeah. off. Yeah so it's 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 unclear. So there's a lot of murk there. But what's interesting though, right, is that what I found fascinating was that um James himself, who who was the you know the the projected target he does not inflate this afterwards into a general attack on Catholics. No, he doesn't. So he gives a speech to Parliament on the 9th of November, and he says, um, you know, no foreign power was involved in this. You know, he doesn't t- take the opportunity, I suppose, because he's just concluded peace with Spain. So he thinks, well, I'm not going to stir things up again. But also he goes out of his way to say, you know, most English Catholics are just a bit misguided. They're very loyal. They're, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be party to any of this. So, so in that, rather like uh, George Bush after 9-11, uh, desperate not to blame it on 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 yeah. American Muslims, but unlike George Bush, in that Bush, of course, does blame it on foreign power. Um, yes, yeah, so but he's so kind of, of interesting sort of thing of it. This is not true Catholicism. <laughs> that kind no, he of, doesn't uh, do that. He doesn't do that. <laughs> you know, Catholicism is a religion of peace. He, do, he yeah. doesn't go into that. No, no. But he and, and I mean, I think it's worth asking. It, I mean, I think that's impressive because the 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 scale of what was being plotted really was. Horrific. So we've got a question from uh, Simon Girdleston. Uh, has anyone ever worked out if the gunpowder had gone off, how big the explosion would have been? The, the answer to that question is very unexpected, isn't it, Tom? It's very <laughs> unexpected indeed. It's a top historian who you wouldn't necessarily, uh, who you wouldn't predict. Top historian. It's it's top gear. It's, it's top <laughs> gear is Richard Hammond, who in yes. the ITV special Gunpowder Plot Exploding the Legend, yeah. got, expert, got, got experts in to work that out. And the answer was, it would have blown everything up. Um, so it would have blown up the Houses of Parliament, uh, Westminster Hall, Westminster Abbey would have come crashing down. So it would have been absolute carnage. Um, yeah, 36, and it's 36 barrels of gunpowder. I mean, that's, yeah, a, that's a lot. That's a lot. If it, yeah. if it had gone off, but of course it was never going to go off. But if they'd got their way, we're talking about hundreds, certainly hundreds of people, um, and not just the great and the good either. I mean, this is where your sort of 9-11 comparison comes in. You know, there would have been all kinds of servants, 
guards. Yeah. The, the people, carnage would have been absolutely People horrendous. scurrying about with petitions, passers-by, sightseers, you know, yeah. uh, traders. Yeah. P- all, all these kinds of people would have which been Which in killed. turn then, then begs the obvious question, which um, Simon James Jones asks, if it had been successful, would it have initiated a Catholic revolution? Um, and he correctly says the attempts to create one despite the plot failure suggests there was no appetite for it. And then yeah. Simon Hodge, what's the hope of some kind of Catholic seizure of power if the plot had succeeded realistic or even plausible? I usually assume success would just have meant even worse repression afterwards. This is what, so the person who's actually dealt with this in a really nice essay on the BBC website is our previous guest, Ronald Professor Hutton. Ronald Hudson. Yeah. And he goes into this and he says, well, we know because the plotters wrote about the countryside saying that the plot had worked and nobody rose up. So even if the plot had worked, the same would have happened. They would have ridden around the countryside and people would not have risen up. And actually, he says, I think utterly plausibly, what would have happened is in the, the hours and days after the plot, there would have been a colossal rep- and very bloody repression of English Catholics. And the person who would have become king, because uh, Henry, the Prince of Wales, a uh, charismatic Protestant hero, Protestant hero already, he would have died in the explosion, which would have left um, James's younger son, Charles, to become Charles the First, as he that later, much later, does in reality, but and a very different, a very yeah. different reign, a very different person. So Ronald Hutton suggests again, seems to be completely plausibly that 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 Charles, growing up against the background of this um, attack, this murder of his his family, would have become both a, an absolutist, which in a sense you know Charles did, but but a radical Protestant absolutist, which would yeah. have got the the radical puritan opinion that in due course go to go to war with him and end up putting him on the block um would absolutely got you know he'd, he'd have generated enormous radical protestant enthusiasm um yeah. and there would have been a kind of absolutist protestant regime uh and and then hutton suggests there would in the long run have been a revolution yeah it's great so, I, <laughs> so, I love a bit of counterfactual yeah history. i love a bit of counterfactual um even though we kind of we 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 dissed it in our counterfactual episode, but we reserve the right to change our minds when Ronald Hudson is involved. Um, so yes, and what's also interesting about this? So so that's the plot. That's the counterfactual. Now the commemoration, the commemoration, the the movement to commemorate it starts straight away. So January sixteen oh six, a fellow called Sir Edward Montague, he introduces a bill for public thanksgiving, and they have and they say they let's have an annual service. And that re- annual service of Thanksgiving remains in the prayer book uh, for 250 years or so until 1859 and is then shamefully, in my view, <laughs> taken out. <laughs> is that where it all went wrong for the Church of that, England? Yeah, absolutely it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it should have been every month, frankly, not every year. Um, anyway, they. Uh, <laughs> the, so, yes, yeah, so straight away. But what's interesting is that the beginning, I mean, they do have – so. Things they often had bells and bonfires and things like that in the 17th century, but Guy Fawkes is not part of the story really at that stage, no. and indeed not part of the story for a very long time. Well, the thing the thing I love about the commemorations is, is that um, Charles I, obviously, you know, he, he fights the civil war, head gets chopped off, you, you get uh, the protectorate, um, and, and and so many of the kind of traditional Christian festivals punctuate the year get banned, but <laughs> Bonaparte doesn't. So they're still throughout the protectorate. They're celebrating the escape of Charles I's father, the king, yeah, from from people who wanted to kill him, which is kind of fabulous. But they have fire. They have even at that stage they have fireworks and they have yes, bonfires. He sees them, doesn't he? 
Well, Peeps, so Peeps in 1660, I mean, obviously you can see where they're doing in 1660. The monarchy has been restored. Charles is, Charles II is back. You know, this is, um, his grandfather, his grandfather's escape. They have a huge bonfire and fireworks and Peeps records it in his diary. And then in 1664, do you know what he does on bonfire night, Tom? He no. goes to see Macbeth. Of course. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He goes to see Macbeth and on the way home, their coach has to be diverted because there are so many bonfires. Uh, I mean, it then, all adds up. But then. Then November the 5th, 1666, doesn't he say, I've seen no bonfires? Because obviously having huge bonfires a few months after the Great Fire of London would, oh, not, yeah. <laughs> would not be sensitive bit, timing at all. It would be poor form. It would be, poor would be form. very poor form. The other thing that, that kind of um, swells the mood of Protestant celebration that you're yeah. celebrating on, on, on the 5th of November is that uh, 1688, the Glorious Revolution, when the Catholic James II is uh, forced to flee following the invasion um, of the Dutch uh, Prince of Orange. This is your moment now to talk about the Dutch. Yes. For the duration of this podcast, of this podcast series. This is the allotted time to talk about the Dutch. The Stadtholder, descendant of, of William the Silent, who'd been, uh, who'd been assassinated. Um, yeah. a, a leader of a, a, a Protestant war against the Catholic absolutism of um, uh, Louis Fourteenth. And he lands at Torbay on the 5th of November. And his birthday is the 4th of November. Yeah. Bishop Gilbert Burnett, a year later, on the 5th of November, he preaches to the House of Lords and he says, all this proves, and this is a direct quote, we are God's favourite people. Because God has chosen this day and he just gives us everything. It's the day that keeps on giving. Yeah. (laughs) The defeat of plots, the arrival of Dutchmen, you know, what's not to like? So it's it's very much the idea of of England as a, a chosen nation and a Protestant nation, um, and it kind of cements in anti-popery as yeah. the the kind of the great vibrant English kind of British tradition, um, because obviously William the Third goes on uh, to uh, invade Ireland um, to defeat uh, Catholic armies there, uh, and so the legacy of that endures to this day in in Northern Ireland. Um, but in England, it it does start to become complicated because certainly by the beginning of the 19th century, the idea that um, Catholics are the inveterate enemies of Protestant England has been complicated by the fact that um, lots of Catholics have been executed in, in, in Paris um, yeah. under the French Revolution. Uh, and uh, Protestant Englishmen have kind of woken up to the realisation that there might be kind of foes worse than Catholics. So this is the point at which I think Guy Fawkes comes in. Yes. So you can see there are lots of plays about Guy Fawkes in the early 19th century. And um, there's this sort of growing sense of Guy Fawkes becoming a bit of an anti-hero. You know, the, a swashbuckling, romantic. Well, he's kind of a hero of pantomimes and things, isn't he? He is. <laughs> there's lots of comedies and, about him, bizarrely. Yes. And uh, it, it, it's, it's nothing about the, the Protestant Catholic divide there's a revival of that in the 1850s when the um catholic hierarchy is reintroduced into England. but what about when when um, so 1829 the catholic emancipation i don't think that did make a big massive well maybe it did and i just haven't picked up on it one thing we haven't mentioned of course is the export of this so what's really fascinating is that throughout the 18th century people are celebrating it with such gusto in america so there's all sorts of they have it they call it pope day in new york and they burn effigies of the Pope, the Devil, and Bonnie Prince Charlie. That's a good range. 
It's a good, but it is a good, but it's a range that makes sense, right? They're all on the same team. Yes. I mean, yes. They're on Team Antichrist. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and in Boston, the nor- rival North and South Ends, kind of working class districts, they both produce popes. And um, there's a big thing in Boston on Bonfire Night where you you try and grab the other person's the other the other district's pope and burn that as well as your own. Great. So fun. it becomes so it becomes a massive punch up to try yeah. and get the other side's pope and then burn it. I, I think that's, that's better than the Super the fa- Bowl, isn't it? The fact that Boston has turned its back on that tradition, I think, I find very sad. I know they've had a lot of Irish and Italian immigration, and there's a lot of Catholics now. But come on, they can put their confessional well, I, stuff I to one also, side. I suppose and, also they've had a revolution that's got rid of. Yes. King. So you know what George Washington said about Bonfire Night? Hey, what did George Washington say? A ridiculous and childish custom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that just proves, confirms my view that George Washington is one of the most boring men who ever lived. Um, yeah. Very dull yeah. man. Well, we cancelled him, didn't we? Yeah, we did. His statue yeah. deserves to s- come down for his attitude to Bonfire Night alone. And I see that they've cancelled Thomas Jefferson as well. Yeah, probably another so, Bonfire so we Night were, skeptic. We, 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 were ahead of, uh, we were ahead of the curve there. Um <laughs> Right. Anyway, so we are alienating all our American listeners with that. Well, I'll tell you who we should please. Therefore, we need to win listeners in Guildford to make up for it. Because <laughs> uh, Guildford was the head was was a real bonfire night place in the mid nineteenth century. So throughout the eighteen fifties and eighteen sixties, yeah, sorry, the American listeners who've it just would be, it's a commuter town basically now. Uh, it would be taken over by people called the Guildford guys, who were a mob, and uh, it was it was a no go area for the police. Um, the Guildford guys were rampage. Guildford is a no-go area. A no-go me. area because the the mob would take it over on bonfire, like <laughs> smashing stuff up and fighting. And in 1863, they had to send an infantry and dragoons to deal with people <laughs> of Guildford because they were so overexcited about bonfire night. Well, the character of Surrey towns really changed, didn't they? Yeah. So obviously, Guy Fawkes, I think, ends up looming larger and larger. I mean, it becomes so penny for the guy, penny for, uh, yeah. small boys. They make kind of figures, kind of human figures, which they call the guy, and they put him in go karts, don't they? I push him I, around. I, I did you ever build a guy? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So did I. I I loved the penny for the guy. Well, I'm very sorry that it. And, has and this died is out. where American listeners can 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 feel pleased because basically there was a tradition where small boys would push this guy around in a go kart and essentially extort money. So yeah. a penny for the guy. But that tradition now has been taken over by the American custom of Halloween. Yeah. So the guys, I mean, nobody, I haven't seen a guy for, no, no, no. for ages. Um, also, the other tradition I remember from, so this is 1970s, is the tradition was that fireworks have become quite domestic. You know, you bought fireworks, you did them in yeah. your back garden. The, the tradition was that of of the 20 fireworks, 10 didn't go off. Yeah. And the other 10 basically went off in your father's face. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and it was just, it was basically, you know, it was, it was kind of party season at A&E yes. because it was just full yes. of middle-aged men lost an eye because yes. a firework had gone off in their face or something. So I suppose uh, the, the decline of that might be down to health and safety. I think, uh, I, yeah. I, I'm sure it must also be down to, um, sensitivities over. Uh, anti-Catholic celebration. Do you think that's really true? I mean, I think I, a bit. I even think a among bit. the drippiest, most pious. No, I think I think it is a bit, and I, I think that um, I think it's also been complicated by uh, nervousness about Islamist terrorism. A bit. I think. Really? I do. You think I, so? do I do think that. I think the the idea of uh, celebrating what is essentially a kind of sectarian uh, festival has has become, dare I say, problematic. I'm going to two bonfire nights. 
Of course you are. Of course you are, because you're the robust voice of Middle England. Yeah. But I, pre- I'm going to warn, do you know where, where the first one is? It's at Soho Farmhouse. You can't get much more uh, robust so- Middle England than <laughs> where Harry met Meghan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure Meghan doesn't approve of it. Oh, she'd be. I mean, <laughs> so how is she? They could well end up on the Lewis bonfire. Because Good. in Lewis, yes. which is this place, it's in Sussex, isn't it, Lewis? Yeah. Um, so they the home get of Gideon eight- Mantell, who we talked about in the dinosaur episode. Right. They get 80,000 people lining the streets because they have these colossal effigies. They've had Margaret Thatcher. They've had George Bush. They've had Osama bin Laden. They've had Jerry Halliwell. They've had all the big names. They've had David Cameron, Wayne Rooney, Donald Trump. They had six Donald Trumps one year. Um, and they always pick people who've been in the news and set them on fire. And then there's always sort of a little bit of outrage in the newspapers afterwards. How could you possibly burn Wayne Rooney or whoever? Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Harry and Meghan on that. I'm not saying I agree with it for those listeners who are big Meghanophiles, but do you not think that's plausible, Tom? I think it's plausible. Yeah. Who would yeah. you like to burn? Who would you burn a bond if you had to do a? Oh, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, do you know, I, it's going to sound very witty. I'm I'm not really the burning type. I know you're not. I knew you, I knew you wouldn't answer the question. <laughs> Who would you like to burn? Oh, God, so many. <laughs> so, so many people. Who's head of your long list? Um, oh, I don't know. I, I, to be honest, I find it very hard to narrow it down. Okay. Um, I, okay. So, I'd probably so burn we, some so... of our rival history podcasters. How about that? <laughs> That's a good one. Yes, I like that. Okay, so we've, we've ducked that for, for our very different reasons. Um <laughs> But one a bit, one way in which Guy Fawkes has kind of endured. So we mentioned earlier about um, Beef of Vendetta. Yes. Uh, which is... Um, Alan Moore's uh, comic. Very good comic. So in the 80s. Say. Although, uh, I mean, you can't... Because it revolves around um, the whole premise. It's an alternative history of the 80s, isn't it? Yeah. In which the premise is, is that Michael Foote wins the general election in 1983. Yeah, very implausible in so my that opinion. Was, that was never going to happen. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, Michael Foote wins the election in 1983. I'm he, so glad we've got Michael Foote into this he, he He unilaterally disarms Britain. Uh, there's then a nuclear war. Britain escapes the nuclear war because of, uh, because of Michael Foote. But then there's a fascist takeover. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of evil dictator. And there's a shadowy figure who's basically Guy Fawkes uh, who ends up blowing up Parliament. That's right. There's a very poor film of this, but I, I think it's a really brilliant graphic novel. Um, a great window into the sort of paranoia very, of the it, 80s. It's very Wiltshire-phobic. Is it? Yes. Is, is that uh, where but, there's a concentration camp in Wiltshire? Yes, at Lark Hill, which is just, just above Stonehenge. Oh, Tom. And you so whinge I'm, about a tunnel and they, it's a concentration camp. could have had no, a concentration camp. No, that wasn't a concentration camp. camp. He's made it up. <laughs> He's well. made it up. So I, I, I boycott it. I think it's unacceptable bigotry against Wiltshire. Okay, um, well. I think, I think he... I didn't think that was the bigger thing. I think he chose Lark Hill because he'd been on a walking holiday across at Salisbury Plain and somebody was rude to him and refused him a drink of water in Lark Hill. Oh. So, so he's immortalised it as this. Wow. Oh, and also in that, it, also in that there's, a, there's a kind of port and down, which is also on Salisbury Plain, kind of port and down um, biological weapon centre, which, uh, which leaks a, a, a kind of a plague. God, he's really got it in for Welshire. He really has. Yeah, it's, he, he really has. Um, but there's a kind of COVID-y type scenario of a, a a virus escaping from a yeah from a government lab um but that kind of established the you know as i said these idea that these masks um guy fawkes masks and i think anonymous used it who are kind of radical group online that's right um o- the occupy movement were very keen on it 
Yeah. Um, so those are on the left. And then on the right, you've got the Guido Fawkes website, which is a kind of conservative anarchist. That's that's a very good point. Website. Yeah. So Guy Fawkes has become um, a sort of generic anti-establishment icon. So the, on the on the on the uh, the Guido Fawkes uh, website, um, I think the tagline is "the only honest man to enter Parliament." Yeah. The only man to enter Parliament in, with honest intent, which is, which is an old joke, which has been kind of recycled because the whole premise of the website is that it's gossip that's designed to, to bring and yet, of course, down. the gunpowder, the gunpowder plotters were, were not libertarians, anarchists, no, you know, proto socialists or any of these things. No, they, a, a, a world, Robert Catesby's ideal world would presumably have been a sort of rather like 17th century France or something, a more absolute monarchy. Yeah. With, with, with him in rights. a leading position. Yeah. I think so. It's all um, about social advancement. Yes. It's well as you say, it's Bullingdon Club boys who haven't got the jobs they wanted. Yes, exactly. Right. So is that it? Yeah, I think we've put the we have we have the the last embers are dying out. I'm trying to think of a bonfire related metaphor. It's not really <laughs> not really working. The hedgehogs uh, have been taken to safety. I think that's the notion on which we should end. We should anyone who's building a bonfire, remember to check it for hedgehogs. Yeah, you should build a bonfire, by the way. Yeah, and, and absolutely you should commemorate bonfire night because it's old fashioned and it's patriotic. So yeah, but also um, as as uh, Ronald Hutton in our previous episode said, it's also very ancient. Tradition of lighting bonfires is actually much older than around this yeah. time. Is much older. But look out for the hedgehogs, night. and you'll make Tom Holland happy. Yeah, you will. Brilliant. All right. Well, um, so this is going out on the fourth of November. So fifth of November is tomorrow. Uh, I hope those listening who are going to bonfire nights have a wonderful time. Uh, I Stand hope back you, from the fireworks. I hope don't. those those of you in foreign climes who don't have the fortune to celebrate this wonderful day uh, don't feel too bad about it. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.